This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today's episode is the final episode of our season. The episode features a very special conversation, one that I have wanted to have since I started the show two years ago. In the episode, I sit down with Manjula Padmanabhan, whose brilliant work I encountered over a decade ago in graduate school, and whose writing is at the core of almost all my thinking about ethics and technology. Thousands of students who have passed through my classes have read her play Harvest, and I've spent hours, weeks, and days talking about her writing, her characters, and her stories. I'm especially thrilled to share our conversation with you today. Manjula Padmanabhan is an author, playwright, artist, and cartoonist. She grew up in Europe and South Asia, returning to India as a teenager. Her play Harvest won the Onassis Award for Theater in 1997 in Greece. Her books include Getting There, Escape, and The Island of Lost Girls. She has illustrated over 20 children's books, including I Am Different and Shrinking Vanita. She lives in the United States with a home in Delhi. Hi, Manjula. Hi, Deb. So this is a real pleasure for me, for listeners who have not heard me or taken my class before. Manjula, your play Harvest is probably at the deepest foundations of my thinking in so many different arenas and certainly in the ethics of technology. So this is really exciting for me. I wanted to start off by asking you a question about science fiction, which is the object of my study. And I think at the bedrocks of the way that I think about science fiction is related to ethics and technology. And when I talk about why I am interested in science fiction in the context of ethics and technology, I say that, well, before we can build anything, we first have to imagine it. So it matters how we imagine something. Science fiction writers give us the ability to imagine in terms of our human values and imagine in ways in which a potential vision for the future might transgress a human value. I've had a number of science fiction writers on the show, and one consistent theme in our conversation about science fiction is that there seems to be no consistent theme or agreement about what science fiction is or how we ought to define it. How do you think about science fiction? What is science fiction for you? It's been different things over the years. When I first began to read science fiction, I was a child and it didn't occur to me that there was um, a special genre. I was maybe 12 when I read Robert Heinlein's, I've never been sure how to pronounce his name when you, when you're able to tell me, do tell me. I'm never very sure how to say it. I say it Heinlein as, as if he were German. And I read Have Spacesuit Will Travel. And I had a tremendous interest in mythology as a very young child. And as I grew up, the interest in mythology, that is a Greek and Roman and Scandinavian mythology was what I was first exposed to. And then when we returned to India, I encountered Indian mythology in the entire, I mean, Indian mythology pretty much takes the center stage in South Asian and Southeast Asian mythology. But I remained very loyal to the Greek and Roman and Scandinavian gods. And I I think it's just because I knew them well. So that's my early life. And that gradually transformed to an interest in folk tales and fables and fairy tales, of course you know, the whole broad range of 
European fairy tales because again, because we were in Europe when I was a child, I was exposed to the Grimm tales, uh, the Brothers Grimm, and of course, uh, Hans Christian Andersen. And I loved fairy tales. I loved what they did to my thought process. So when I first read Heinlein, I realized this is different. It, I mean, obviously it is different, but it was going to the same part of my mind that got pleasure from fairy tales and mythology. The idea, I mean, of course, that was then overlaid with so much else, you know, the the, the stuff on TV. I was, uh, we were in Thailand at the time that I read this. And I don't think I heard the term science fiction. So what matters to me is that the genre gives me a certain kind of pleasure and a, a certain kind of intellectual pleasure and I know that I'm dealing with science fiction when I encounter that, that sensation, that otherness. At a further level, I could say, I count something as science fiction when it stretches reality in, in particular ways. Fantasy stretches realities in, in a somewhat traditional way because ma magic has been a long-standing tradition in human societies, some kind of magic. Science fiction takes the concept of magic and gives it a kind of technical base. We know that some part of it is, is magical too because, for instance, we watch Star Trek. I imagine most of us realize that the transporter in fact, we'll never, we will never see something like a transporter. Nevertheless, we accept it, we love it, and we, it makes watching Star Trek so much easier because we don't have to wait light years before they can land on a planet. So, you know, we accept that uh, in a different way to magic. We, we have a sense that it's not natural, it's technological, the things that happen, but we accept that, that it's different. So, Science fiction is a space, it's a, it's a feeling, and it's a stretching of reality. I, I had a student a while back say to me, you know, we produced a quote that I thought mm -hmm. was so interesting, that any technology sufficiently developed is yes. indecipherable from magic. Yes. And yes. I've been thinking about that ever since. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I think science fiction does in elevating a form of technological advancement to the level at which we recognize it to be in mm -hmm. a sense magical, is it allows us to play out hypotheticals or to see how human values might translate into realities in certain mm -hmm. ways that they that they that we may not be able to understand them as concepts. And so one mm -hmm. of the things I think that you do is you give us the technology, say, okay, what if we could do this? How does our value end up playing out? Right? How does our proposed value, for example, being able to harvest organs play out when we actually have the technology that enables us to do this and mm -hmm. that allows us to do it with such rapaciousness that we mm -hmm. end up exploiting people in phenomenal ways. Mm -hmm. And I find that absolutely so interesting. So it was Arthur C. Clarke who made that statement, I think, about uh, magic Thank and you. technology. <laughs> um, because it's something, you know, when I read it, I thought he is so right, as he has been about so many things. For me, uh, the using science fiction was a very, very natural because in many ways, uh, as a traveler, as someone who grew up as a traveler, not not someone who looked forward to doing it because I'd been living, you know, I, I did not live in one place all my life and looked forward to traveling as something that I would do when I could. I grew up with the sense that it was normal to be moving around every three years. 
And it took a, it took a while to adjust to the idea that most or many people spend their whole lives in one place. The point I'm making is that for me, the traveling aspect of science fiction, which is in fact quite common, was already in place in my life. So the sense of being somebody crossing boundaries, someone who is often, because I was very often different to the people around me, even when we returned to India, one of surprising adjustments I had to make was to realize that being in what is what was considered my country didn't automatically mean that I was regarded as one of us. I wasn't. Uh, the, the sense of being other became clear to me very, very early on. I mean, when I first met other Indian children, I was about six, five and a half or six, five and a half. And it was a shock, really, to understand that they didn't automatically accept me because I was different to them. I was different in in very ordinary ways. I didn't speak. I didn't speak Hindi. Most of them spoke Hindi, and I was not used to being teased. And it didn't hurt me, but it it just I it was like being tickled in an unfamiliar place. I got this this sense of so I have to say this because it's true of me. If I am feeling if someone is trying to make me feel uncomfortable my natural ordinary response is to think there's something wrong with them. <laughs> it's never me, never me. So if the young little people in, in the, in whom I met, the, in the other children whom I met in uh, Karachi were trying to make me feel uncomfortable because I wasn't like them, my response was for myself, to think I'm normal and they are not. <laughs> and that's their problem, not mine. And it, this has in general been my approach. And I think I would say that's part of why I took so readily to writing science fiction, because it was the place where I felt as normal as other people writing within this genre. The otherness that was often the, a situation in science fiction felt natural to me, which is the sense of being an alien and of being surrounded by aliens was normal. Yeah, I think about this a lot. I mean, a lot of the things that you mentioned, sense of alienation, the sense of travel, the sense of otherness, all of those things seem to be very common themes in science fiction. And now you've got me thinking about the relationship between science fiction and increasing forms of globalization, which is, of yes. course, something that you talk about in Harvest. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the idea of the modern and perhaps this futuristic in terms of alienation, in terms of otherness, in terms of travel, in terms of difference and the context of what science fiction is trying to accomplish or do or convey. Do you see a link between the two? One of the recurring themes in my life as a writer and as, as specifically as a writer of science fiction is the sense of being overtaken by, by some of the ideas first expressed in science fiction as fiction. And even in Harvest, uh, which is not very technology heavy, even so, at the time I wrote Harvest, there was no Skype. There were, of course, no, no Zoom calls. At the time I wrote it, it was very much a science fictional element to imagine talking to a, to a lighted screen. Now we do that routinely. So uh, some of the technology in Harvest is standard now. 
What is not standard, of course, is that in harvest, we see a crossing of natural, of boundaries of acceptance because the contact module is able to do things that today would require a lot of boundary crossing licenses. You know, you'd have to be licensed to enter another person's space and quite the, the intrusive way that that module does. But that is what has changed. Not, I mean, what, what does not happen in harvest is, is what we encounter all the time. You ask me my permission and, mm-hmm. and we need to, we, we do that. We ask, you know, in one way or the other, signing EU, LA uh, consent. Yeah, Con- all the time. There's no yeah. consent in harvest. So in harvest, what happens is closer to the colonial contact where mm-hmm. colonials arrived at, on the shores of other cultures and just presumed that they could take over because they had, um, they had technology that allowed them to do that. So there is an element of harvest in harvest of a type of colonial invasion. However, one of the things about harvest that may or may not be obvious is that towards the end of the play, we really... I don't know that anyone is completely aware of it. We don't know who or what Virgil is. We can't ever know whether in fact he is of the same culture as the family. We don't know. He could be he or she. We don't know what he is, whether he is he or she. He says he's a man, but the only thing we know about him is that we don't know very much. I wonder if we could back up for just a second. And, you know, I tried sometimes and and summarize the harvest for Mm -hmm. people who are curious about it. And when you and I uh, talked a bit uh, before Mm -hmm. this recording, I let you know that I came across the play about 10 years ago and Mm -hmm. I've been reading it for 10 plus years now. And every time Mm -hmm. I read it, I get something new out of the play. And in that sense, the play is transformational. When I talk about literature with my students, I share with them that there are four levels of interpretation that I want us to keep our eye on. Those four dimensions include the textual, what the text says, what the themes are, what the narrative is, for example, the historical, what was the context that and developed the author during the writing of the text? What was the material and the historical reality that the writer was embedded in or re- referencing, which you talked about, the colonial uh, history itself? And then what's the philosophical or the hermeneutical? What kinds of messages or themes are coming through? And then finally, uh, the transformational. And what I mean by the transformational is that when we read the text, the text is simultaneously, in a sense, reading us. And because we are different every single time we read the text, I've read Harvest more than 40 times now, the text stays the same, same scribbles on the same pages, but we are different. And so we see different things in it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the summary of the play is for those who haven't read it. And then I wanted to ask you whether there are things that you see now in the play that perhaps you didn't see when you were writing it. When you come back and revisit it, are there new things that jump out at you in 2022 that perhaps weren't available or weren't visible at the time? I have to say right away, I don't actually read it very often. <laughs> I, okay. I, because you know it's done I wrote it in 96 <laughs> I've seen it on stage several mm. quite a few times I have of course read it uh, in proofing because there, there, there have been at least five versions of it 
And in the past, I used to read it more often than I do. So to, to get back to, the, to your starting uh, suggestion, which is that I described the play. So the play is, it, it, it concerns four characters, a couple, who, the man's name is Om, the woman's name is Jaya. They live together with Om's mother, who I call Ma. And there is a fourth character, which is Om's um, uh, brother, Jitu. Jitu is not present when the play begins, and we gradually learn that he makes a living as a gigolo. This family is impoverished. They live in a slum tenement. And when the play begins, we discover that Om has just come back from applying for a job with a mysterious international agency. And we discover again also that he has got the job. And as he tries to explain to his mother what the job entails, we get only a shadowy sense of what the job is. But the wife, Jaya, who, is, who does know what he has applied for, is angrily reveals that he has given this international agency the right to, to use any part of his body in exchange for which they will be given vast amounts of not just wealth, but their entire lifestyle will get a huge upgrade. They'll have regular water, they'll have a... She doesn't know the extent to which their lives will change. But this is the... It's a Faustian contract. It's a classic Faustian contract, which is I give you... The devil gives you something, and that something is very valuable to you, but you give me your soul. So in this case, it's not the soul. It is actually the body. So there is a little twist there. And it's almost as if, though it is the body, the body's parts, Ohm's body parts that are, have been bartered away, what they lose is also their sense of self. And we see these, this transformation. And then and in the course of the play, we see through the me means of a communication device, a visual communication device which is left in their room by, by the guards who come and set it up. We see the person who is supposedly going to receive parts of uh, Ohm's body because this person who's called Ginny and is presented to us mm -hmm. as a very beautiful and apparently young and attractive woman. She's presumably unwell in some way and she may at any time require a transplant. All of this is left vague. What she might need, when she might need it, all of this is not specified. And then towards the end of the play, as the this little family is ultimately gutted, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally, we end the play with Jaya alone in her room because the others have one way or the other been taken away from her. And then she discovers that the person that they have communicated all along uh, with as uh, Ginny and is revealed to, in fact, not be a, man, a woman, but is a man. And he tells her that, in fact, all along, they have been interested in Jaya because she is a child, a woman of childbearing years. 
and he has an interest in her as a woman in the sense of for her uh, ability to bear children, which is really a shocking shift because all along the focus has been on Om and his body and his ability to, to uh, in a sense, finance this entire life change through his willingness to give away body parts. And to discover that all along she was the focus is a shock for her. And I suspect a shock for the audience because it's a complete shift. And at the same time, if you stop and think about it, it is also a body part that that Virgil is interested in. And that at the time that I was writing the play, I did not start out writing the play with this end point in mind. I moved towards that end point as I wrote the play. And it, it made sense to me to make a, a shift in focus. And it, it kind of fell into place in, in a very satisfying way. But it does place, in, in terms of staging the play, it does mean that there is, at the end of the play, a huge shift in, you know, the final two scenes are very, very difficult to perform because of the big shift in context. I think I, I enjoyed being able to pull that rabbit out of that hat, but I won't pretend that I set out to do that. It, it, happened, it happened as I wrote the play. I wanted to respond by sharing with you that this year when I taught the play, students had a reaction actually that to go back to the transformational, they had in 2022 that I actually had not seen any students previously reading this play have. Now reading this in 2022 in the United States, one thing that becomes very clear is as you pointed out, a lot of the plays pivoted around questions of consent. Organ donation mm -hmm. carries with it a fundamental question of consent, right? Before mm -hmm. I donate my kidney. I mm -hmm. have to consent to donate my kidney. Nobody can compel me to mm -hmm. donate my kidney, right? right? I have to make that decision on my own. It's fundamental to what we think of as the practice of ethical organ donation. Of course, mm -hmm. that is in the black market, which you talk about organ harvesting overturned, but in organ uh, donation, that is essential. Now, Reading this in 2022, in a moment where we are watching in the United States, Roe versus Wade potentially mm -hmm. get overturned. Mm -hmm. Question of women's consent. You know, the idea that I, I have to choose to donate my kidney, that the person over there may die without a kidney, but they cannot take it from me. Mm -hmm. And then to have women's reproductive rights, the idea that a woman has to give over her womb to another entity in a way that we would never ask for in mm -hmm. terms of organ donation, I think turned my students to look at Jaya's condition and the ending here as fundamentally different than I had ever seen before because they were very concerned about reproductive rights for women and consent. Mm -hmm. So to talk mm -hmm. about the transformation this was right. a very unique moment to be reading this particular text and it made mm. it made a lot of sense that's great I mean I, I could also say at the time I wrote the play I would have I it would have been nice to think that the play would become redundant or it would the issues in the play would cease to be of much interest because surely and hopefully and I don't like to use hopefully like that so surely we can hope that things will improve. But sadly, the play continues to be relevant because we are moving through times when this, this issue of consent and of invasion of other people's spaces, never mind their countries, but the, this mental and physical space is still a very big issue, 
And so is the subject of organ harvesting. Instead yeah. of be becoming less important, it is continuing to be important. And for instance, a group in Italy, a play group in Italy got in touch with me years ago to say they wanted to perform harvest and they did. And I've seen a, a reading, a, a kind of studio reading of harvest in Italian. And the reason they were interested in it was because our organ harvesting was taking place in poorer regions of Italy. And they wanted to perform the play because it was relevant to them as a country. One of the things I have dis I discovered about a harvest and the way it is received, it's received very differently in places where there might be a possibility of organ harvesting in the way that it happens in harvest, that is not really with consent, with a kind of modulated consent. After all, poverty is what inspires Om. If they weren't poor, they wouldn't go in this direction. And again, the shadow behind this is prostitution. Underlying everything is the shadow of prostitution because prostitution usually does not take place except when a person is impoverished enough to need to sell his or her body. And one of the ironies of prostitution is that at some level, whenever we sell any part of our activities, we are engaging in, in commerce. And the thing that makes prostitution different to other forms of commerce is just our sense of shame involving sexual activities. When it comes to the body and the body's parts, again, it only becomes distasteful if there's an element of either coercion or great poverty. If I either donate or sell a body part of my own free will and not because I'm either coerced or very poor. That's considered very different to being coerced or being forced to do it out of poverty. So, you know, there is alongside everything, there is a much deeper, much older discussion on the subject of prostitution and our feelings about prostitution. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think shifts the ground away from prostitution toward a more uh, severe uh, understanding of the dimension of the commerce itself is the way that organ harvesting is wrapped up in all sorts of fairly modern technologies, right? They say of prostitution, it's the oldest form of, of work. Oldest, right? it's, oldest it's the profession. oldest form. For old discussion. Um, meanwhile, uh, organ donation is relatively new. And mm. uh, it, one of the reasons it's relatively new is that the technology itself is relatively new. It's less, you know, in, in its current form uh, than 100 years old. Uh, I mm -hmm. think that the idea of organ transplantation, the idea that we can put body parts from one person into the body of another person is central to the play theme. And it pivots around this kind of new technological landscape where it is possible to do such a thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm, I'm curious, what does the technology of organ donation change about what it means to be human in the first place? This issue of what organ donation does is the history of organ transplantation emerging in mid 20th century. And realization that the knowledge of brain death allowed the additional recovery of heart, pancreas, lungs, and intestines. This is, you know, this is an important issue, 
but we are also at this moment exploring the use of animal body parts for humans as you know i think pig hearts have been there's been a pig heart transplant while reading your question and thinking then about the, uh, this recent surgery involving a pig's heart this led me to think but you know we eat other animals and plants all of both of which are alive we assume the right to take their lives how much longer will it be before we assume the right to take the lives of people who some of us consider less human how long will it take this declaration of human rights it's wonderful but very many people around the world do not think whole classes of people are human and that that is in some ways amongst our most painful ethical issues to face that we have the united nations declaration of human rights but all 8 billion of us don't seem to follow or understand the implications of that declaration or don't even quite know it you know we find it easy to to detest others in such a way that we deny them the simple dignity of human of being human when we we declare that somebody deserves to be either killed or destroyed in some way and in this sense it really bothers me when people hate someone particularly if it's a politician and they find it easy to make really really ugly statements about supposedly hateful people and in a sense whenever they do that whenever we do that we are denying someone their common humanity and it seems to me this united nations declaration should should be a kind of universal a pledge that is taught across all nations so that we pledge on a, you know rather than say prayers maybe we should pledge every day to understand the nature of this declaration I think about this a lot. You know, my background is in human rights and one of the things I think about when I think about the UN HCR or mm-hmm. the United Nations uh the mm-hmm. UN DHR or yes. the United Nations yeah. Declaration of Human Rights is that oftentimes it, it is supposed to work as on the principle of inclusivity, making mm-hmm. clear that all lives are lives anywhere and everywhere. But I think in the back side of that what we have come to understand and to see is that actually it works on the the principle and on the axis of exclusivity meaning that those who are not considered within the bounds of the framework of human rights for one reason or another for example in the context of war oftentimes the nature of the human becomes circumscribed and becomes a way for us to for example negate the obligations that we might ethically have toward the non-human world the planet for example mm-hmm. non-human animals including uh human animals for as i said for one, one reason or another who we discount mm-hmm. from the context of the human so i think it's a little bit of a a challenging well intention but certainly challenging kind of framework to work through it's something mm-hmm. i think a lot about especially you know in the context of your play when you have a certain group of people who for one reason or another have been discounted in the framework mm-hmm. of the human and therefore eligible to have whatever another person who is quote more human wants done to them done to them mm-hmm. it's something that i think a lot about a lot but perhaps we should fill our listeners in with a little bit of the background about the two things you referenced human rights on the one hand and the history of organ donation on another mm-hmm. because it's an interesting philosophical and technological connection when that as you pointed out we talked about briefly when when we connected mm-hmm. earlier to the definition of what it means to be human in the context of human rights and mm-hmm. the history of organ transplantation 
The history of organ transplantation, just to fill uh, listeners in on this, emerged around the mid 20th century. And as transplant medicine accelerated, it actually ended up producing a wealth of legal and ethical concerns, the most critical of which was related to the determination of death, what counted as death. Now, technology at that point had improved to the point in the 1960s where the body could be maintained. That is to say, it, it could function independent of a number of organs. So the term brain death came into relevance as a decision or a marker or boundary after which the body was considered to be dead. Now that determination, brain death, is critical to organ donation because it allows recovery before the cessation of blood flows to the organ. In other words, brain death as a definition allows parts of the body to still be usable after death. Now prior to brain death, organs could only be recovered after the heart had stopped beating, which impeded transplants to kidneys and livers, which, which meant that we could only have transplants of livers and kidneys. And what brain death allowed was the additional recovery of the heart, the pancreas, lungs, intestines. But the technology, and this is, I think, an important argument, uh, is that the technology was only contingent on work in another context of non-technological thought, which is philosophy and the idea that human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere. That had become prominent about a decade ago with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which said as much, human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere. That a human life and a human body born in India was legally and philosophically the same as a human body and a human life in the United States or China or Turkey or anywhere else. So we have to understand that the philosophy had to be in place. The idea that human lives are human lives anywhere and everywhere, and human lives are transferable everywhere and anywhere, before we could actually come up with the technological uh, idea of that. And I'm fascinated by this idea, particularly because in your play, as we've started to talk about already, the technology of organ transplantation actually seems to constitute human rights violations, I think very clearly. Is it that our philosophy and our ideas sometimes go awry and that the intention of human rights actually ends up leading to human rights violations, terrible consequences? Or is there something more problematic about the transplantation technology itself to begin with? I think this is why what you've just said and your question, the question and my answer are really answering the debate about whether or not it should be legal to buy organs for transplant. Because if a person donates an organ willingly and because of a relationship, that's regarded as very different than if I or you or anyone chooses to sell. Now, many people sell blood and sperm, that, eggs. Yes, yes, they sell these things. Apparently, it doesn't, uh, I don't know whether it causes them philosophical debate, but. I think at every point of sale, there is an issue of how right is this? But, you know, at, at another, at one remove, people use love as, as a coin of exchange. And that is one of the issues in Harvest. It is, I, I'm not sure that any, I forget now, I don't know that any character actually says the word love in Harvest, but it is, the, it is a, an unspoken transaction underlying all their relationships. It's not just sex, it is also love. And what Jaya asks of Jitu is that he, she doesn't say it, but she hopes, she you sense that she wishes he would 
acknowledge her love interest in him by agreeing to stay in the house and he doesn't, he goes away. And as I said, it is never really acknowledged. The word love is not used and yet that little family is held together by bonds that are not visible. And the other bond that is of, because bond is that kind of word, it's a legal word, the bond of money and contractual relationships begins to matter more as the play proceeds. And one other relationship which the play refers to by not actually mentioning it is our love for ourselves and our bodies. How much love does one have for oneself? To what extent does our love for ourselves cause us to deny the right of somebody else to live? That is, again, underlaid within the play. And I would like to hope it is something that we ask ourselves all the time. I mean, whether we ask it consciously or not, the ways in which parents give up their lives and their time, their lives, and they don't, I don't mean that they sacrifice themselves for their children in terms of actually dying for their child. At the same time, they give their time, they give their energy and their attention to another living being whose connection to the parent, it's a kind of payment, but it's a payment against the future. And I think all parents, all children are constantly stretching and testing the limits of these unspoken contracts and if you don't feel love for your parent or for your for a, a parent for their child immediately it brings into question how much are you willing to give that child or right. give your parent and these contractual issues are also at the heart of harvest and I, I, I have to say I did not start out writing harvest knowing that I would go down this path But it happened in the course of writing it because the issues were so fundamental. I haven't often been asked why I think Harvest struck such a chord. But I have, for myself, I have answered that question, the question that isn't often asked, which is that it deals with something very fundamental. Everybody reading the play has a body. Mm. Everybody has a commitment to their body. And even though the play refers to characters who may well belong to a culture or a race that is different to the person reading it, it may. Nevertheless, we all recognize the connection that we each have to our own bodies. We, we can't look away from that. So even though the play does not go to familiar places, it is not about a romance gone awry. It is really the romance of the person to their own body that is being referred to all the time in the play. And I I won't pretend that I started out knowing that, that I wrote it knowing that this is what I was doing. But you asked me, what have I discovered about the play since I wrote it? I would say that that's one of the things that I, I realized belatedly that I was writing about something very fundamental. I, I mean, now that you put it that 
way so beautifully, I, I, it's obvious to me, you know, one of the things that happens is you see a person reduced to body parts. And when we think of ourselves, we think of ourselves certainly in terms of this is my hand, listeners can't see this, but I'm holding up my hand. This is my arm. This is my shoulder, shoulder. These are my legs. These are my eyes. These are my nose. And yet none of those things seem to describe the wholeness of what it is to be me. Uh, and the play puts that fundamentally in crisis. How many things can you take away from a person and still have that person be a person? What happens when somebody else has your heart beating inside of them? Are they partly you? What, to what extent are we our body parts? To what extent is there a wholeness Mm-hmm. to us, independent of our wholeness as a body. And mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a body in particular in a, in a technological age, when we think of ourselves as kind of a, you know, meat popsicle, <laughs> or a, a, a brain kind of uh, hanging out on this scaffolding of mm-hmm. something of a self, something, a brain, a mind that can be uploaded to a hard drive and somehow mm-hmm. independently function of what it is to be a thing like me. Now, those of us who may have a disability or people of color certainly know that your body is a fundamental part of how you are recognized in the world and how you move through the world. Uh, but, but, but the question still stands in an age of technological advancement. How, how, how do you think that we relate to our bodies? How do people in Harvest or the characters in Harvest relate to themselves as bodies? Before I go there, I, I want to share a thought experiment that it's not something that I devised, but I, I've always enjoyed thinking about it. Think of a, a, a vessel like a, a, a yacht, let's say, a yacht that goes on around the world journey, takes a whole year. Um, let us say in the course of the year, every single part of this yacht has been replaced along the course of its journey, yet it is regarded as the same yacht. By what, by, by what definition is it the same? Intuitively, we know it is the same. But is it? And in a similar way, our bodies change constantly. Everything is being replaced all the time. So to what extent are we the, the same person who started out as a, as a baby, you know, in my case, 68 years ago? I'm not. And yet um, my memories make me the same. That's why a yacht is different. The yacht doesn't have memories. We think of it as the same. And of course, our memories, we know, shift all the time too. How we think of ourselves, they shift too. It's so slippery when you try and grasp at what it is that we think makes us consistently, authentically, singularly us. Yes. And of course, we we have perhaps as, as adults, we have all maybe encountered uh, people, uh, beloved friends and relatives who at the, as they age reach a point when they are not themselves. And, and the terrible complexity of dealing with someone who has lost their memories or lost their sense of who they are to such a degree that we know they are not that person. At the same time, the body is there. And the body cannot be denied. The body will want to be fed. It will want to continue breathing. It continues its selfhood. This is the extraordinary mind-body, you know, it's like, as you say, is, is the body just a vehicle for this driver, which we call a brain? And yet it, it isn't. I mean, there is a, there is a melding. We are committed to the, the body we happen to have. And there, there have been some very interesting 
news stories is, is it <laughs> i never remember his name correctly uh gene gene weingarten of the washington post he he you he used to do a series of really fascinating news items and one of the pieces he did was about a heart transplant patient and she'd had she got the heart of a, i think a serial killer and it extended her life by many years i i, I might be misremembering misremembering but at least 10 or 12 years is that you know uh and and she was conscious of it she knew who the heart had belonged to and it seemed and of course i might be misremembering all kinds of features of this but i remember that because the article was very well written you got so many dimensions from this but you know at some other level as i said we eat things we eat creatures is that not also after all they become part of us mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. yesterday i watched this movie on netflix called against the ice in which they have to make decisions about their dogs because they they're going across the um, arctic regions with uh, sled dogs and at one point a dog who has died in such a way that oh dies of exhaustion so they're not sure whether they can eat safely eat its liver but the whole issue of eating your dog's liver because you need to live it's poignant yeah. i mean yeah. poignant in both ways meaning it's both sad and also has a point of course our cats would eat us in a trice if they needed to <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love this play as a play because as you put it, the body still stands. When we talk about the ship of uh, Theseus, we're allowed to allow our, we allow our minds to meander into the philosophical and the abstract. But when you watch the play, the bodies are right in front of you. You're never yes. allowed to forget that these entities are not abstract. They are people. And the bodies on the stage embodying, in, in a sense, this kind of philosophical question really never allow you to move too far astray from the fact that these are not philosophies, but actual bodies and that we are composed of our body parts as well. I wanted to switch gears and ask you about bodies in another sense of the context of of literary bodies. And by the end of the play that as you summarized uh, ends with Jeanie replaced by a character called Virgil who she has been revealed to have been all along is that older character male gendered in the play. Virgil of course is not only the name of your character but the name of a classic figure in Greek mythology and history one of Rome's greatest poets and the author of the epic Aeneid he's also immortalized in of course one of the most epic pieces of western literature Dante's The Divine Comedy and as i was thinking about the character I remembered the opening uh, note to the play, which references the genesis for the Onassis uh, competition for theater, which was in Athens, uh, Greece. And I kept thinking about how striking it was that the play seemed to both absorb and seemingly also strike back at the forms and figures of Western mythology, rewriting, in a sense, that kind of mythology, or at least writing back to it from the perspective of an Indian playwright. And really, I think at, at, at its core, these characters who are Indian characters seem both caught up in 
forms and powers and structures of Western culture, but also seem to strike back at it. And I'm wondering what you make of this idea that the play writes back to, or at least grapples with some of the conventions and structures of the West and some of the more classic forms of Western culture, including the literary and dramatic forms and traditions that it performs to and through. How do you think about the play's engagement with not just the Western world vis-a-vis -vis the developing world in substance, but also in form as literary and thematic and dramatic content that is responding to a literary body of canonization that has historically rendered writing from outside of it to the margins? I was uh, intrigued and amused to, to read the, the lines from Virgil, who wrote, you say in 29 BC, the following lines, the greatest wealth is health, Timeo Danaeus at et dona ferentes, fortune sides with him who dares, they can because they think they can, death twitches my ear, live, he says, I am coming. And that is really beautiful, I really enjoyed reading that. However, I will say, I did not think of Virgil the poet or Virgil the character in uh, Dante at all. When I was writing the play, I had a character <laughs> called Ginny. Uh -huh. And for me, of course, Ginny is short for Virginia. Virginia, yeah. And at the same time, the, the, the sound of the word, the name Ginny, of course, goes towards genie, gins. Dungeon. So I preferred and enjoyed that that resonance, the echo of Jin. And I I spell Jin with a D, D-J-I-N-N, because I always loved the presence of Jin's in you know the Thousand and One Nights. And I, I loved the sense of otherness of that vast power contained in a tiny bottle. I love that sense. And I mean, I, I suppose I don't have to explain what I'm talking about, Aladdin, Jin, Carpet, etc. But, you know, the original stories had so much more of a sense of the dark power of the Jin, who is not a devil. That is the extra extraordinary thing. It, he comes out, Jin's come out of a, a myth cycle that does not in, involve heaven and hell. It involves an otherness, a magic, a power that is not described, at least I, I'm not aware that the power source of a jinn is ever actually described. Anyway, so genie, Ginny goes to genie and jinn. When creating Virgil, and I, so this was, you know, I took three, something like three months to write the play. I wrote it in sequence. It's not that I wrote the end, you know, first. Mm -hmm. So when I got towards the end, I was running out, you know, there was a huge deadline. I had to get it. I had to, this is on typewriters. Okay. I mean, not typewriters, but it, it was computers, but, you know, dot matrix printers and horrible things like that. So it, it, I had to make three copies and get it posted to Greece for this, because I sent it to a competition. Um, I was running out of time. I was desperate to get a good ending. I was struggling with it. And the creation of Virgil, who, as I said, appeared as a concept towards the end of my writing, the name just, see, there's Virginia, so Virgil, nothing else. 
everything else, Virgil, blind poet and all of this, I mean, Dante, you know, it's all, it all happened as, I mean, everyone else made these associations. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't use the associate association. Didn't, it didn't color my, the way in which I wrote him. And then as, as I wrote, as I wrote that, that scene, my greatest difficulty was how to pack a whole different narrative of Virgil, his life, why he's done this, why, why he's interested in Jaya. All of this had to be packed into one small scene. And in packing it, I had to undo so much of whatever we may have thought. And, you know, on stage, you don't have the, the luxury of prose to, to describe things, to, to write another chapter where you ask everyone to step aside and, and look at the further background. No, you just have that and you're running out of time that the play is already, you know, half an hour, 15 minutes gone because I, I read it out to myself to get a sense of how long it was. And I had to pack it in, how to pack all of that material into a small space. That's all I was thinking about. It's only later that I began to think we don't have the slightest idea of who or what Virgil really is. If he can have lied all along, he can lie. He keeps saying, I haven't, he, no, it's like, it's not that he keeps saying, he says it once, I haven't told you any lies. He says so. But we know that he has lied. He has lied by association, by context. And by presence, he has shown us a face that he says is not his face. So he has lied by assumptions. And we have no way of knowing in how many other ways he has lied. We don't know if it's a he at all. We don't know what his ethnicity is. We don't know anything about him. All we can see is Jaya. She is whole and real. Nothing else is. So all of the other uh, associations, they're in your mind. <laughs> so, which, which brings them to the level of the transformational, one of the dimensions of, mm -hmm. of textual interpretation that I foreground for my students. And I think in that context, you know, those of us who know the Western canon cannot read the name Virgil without bringing this train of associations in, into the play. I want to read you what Virgil says in the play, um, because I, I think that there is an, a strong it's, correspondence between the lines from Virgil that you yeah. read and what Virgil himself it's says. Incredible. <laughs> it just didn't, it's just by chance. And, and, and I'm not a literature scholar. I did um, a BA in economics and an MA in history. I don't have literature <laughs> in my background. So it, whatever I know of the Western canon is uh, mythology because of mm -hmm. in my early association. I have not read Dante. So I have two older sisters to whom I'm very close. Mm -hmm. The older sister did um, uh, an MA in English literature. So, But here's what Virgil in your play says. He says uh, it ex in his explanation for the context for the Western need for organs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote the speech in full at the end here. He mm -hmm. says, we began to live longer and longer and healthier each generation and more demanding. And soon there was a competition between one generation and the next, old against young, parent against child. We older ones had the advantage of experience. We prevailed, but our victory was bitter. We secured paradise at the cost of birds and flowers and bees and snakes. So we designed this program. We, we support 
poorer sections of the world while gaining fresh bodies for ourselves. And you read the line from uh, Virgil's poem. I'm going to read it again so that we can hear the resemblance and, and the echo. I couldn't shake the feeling that there was this reading your play, this eerie resemblance to Virgil, the classic Greek poet himself, who wrote in about, as you said, 29 BC, the following lines. The greatest wealth is health. Timeo, Danaeus, Adona, Ferentes. Fortune sides with him who dares. They can because they think they can. Death twitches my ear. Live, he says. I'm coming. I find the resemblance so eerie because it's almost as though the Virgil in your play flips it's, that first line. Yes, yeah. The greatest yeah. wealth is health. It's more like today, the greatest health is wealth. That mm-hmm. those who can buy health stay healthy, often in ways that require them to prey upon those who have health, but not wealth. Am mm-hmm. I onto something? How do you think that this idea that increasingly the ability to pay for treatment is overriding this classic idea from Virgil? the greatest wealth is health. What does the idea of health even mean in this extreme age of wealth disparity? Time, it means time. It's a way of buying time. And I, I want to make a little point about what, it's two, two points. I'll start with the point that I believe one of the things that I did in Harvest, which is essential to what makes it an unusual play is that Aside from being unusual just because it is uh, science fictional and theater is rarely science fictional, one of the things that Harvest does is it switches the gaze. Instead of being the West looking eastwards or outwards from the West to the rest of the world, Harvest uses the gaze of the East or you know the South, the global South, because that's more important to the global north. That is the switch that occurs because you cannot read or watch the play without being placed in the global south, looking outward. And it isn't done, I believe, it is not done with a kind of apology given for being unable or um, too modest to make the switch. It is a given. It is a given in the way that when we watch any any play, um, but I'm just going to reference famous plays because it's easier to talk of, of them. When we watch Hamlet or Julius Caesar, we accept that they are speaking in English, even though the characters are Danish and um, Italian. We never question the fact that they're speaking to us in English and that the playwright wrote them their lines in English. I would expect that people reading Harvest accept without fuss that they speak in English because I wrote it like that, and also because that's all I speak. And I take for granted that the characters in Harvest are entitled to present their view to the world without having to say, hey, you know, guess what, I'm Indian and I am living in a slum, and therefore I'm making a certain point. They never say that. They, you enter the I of their situation, that is the uh, first person I, without having to be told, guess what, this is, this is here, and this particular here is making a statement. 
And in doing that, I think there is a certain transformation in the gaze. Now, I would far prefer that I'm not the one who makes the statement. It's a statement that should be made by those reading the play and who recognize that there is a cultural shift taking place. But it, it, has not, it is not often remarked upon, or it isn't remarked upon, because I have a feeling that it isn't regarded as germane to the discussion. But personally, I think it's very important. And now I've actually lost the thread. <laughs> no, that's on point. And it actually leads me directly to what I think is going to have to be our last question, because mm-hmm. we're out of time. Mm-hmm. I, I want to quote to you from the beginning essay in my copy of the text, now that we mm-hmm. have come to the end, mm-hmm. where you wrote, and, I, and I'm going to quote the introduction to the play, the inspiration for Harvest was the flourishing illegal trade in human organs in India. The buyers are Indians as well as non-Indians, while the donors are poor villagers for whom the 20,000 rupees, approximately 444 US dollars, they're paid for a kidney represents an unimaginable fortune. You go on to say, and I'm going to quote you again, that the germ of an idea involving the trade had just begun to sprout when I read about the Onassis Theater competition in late 1995. The theme for the competition was the challenges facing humanity in the next century. It seemed to me that the organ trade provided an appropriate platform for discussing some of the possible challenges, particularly in the context of multinational corporations. The scale of the play, however, is intimate, restricted almost entirely to the four members of a small urban family. I'm interested in in your idea that the play is both specific, you reference the individual and the local context of the illegal human organ trade in India and its specific relationship to the economic situation of Indians vis-a-vis non-Indians. And simultaneously, the play is universal, addressing the theme of the challenges facing humanity. Or for example, as you write later on in the notes on the play that, and again, I'm quoting you, for the sake of coherence, this play is set in Bombay. The donors are Indian and the receivers North American. Ideally, however, the donors and receivers should take on the local identities, names, and costumes and accents most suited to the location of production. It matters only that there is a highly recognizable distinction between the two groups reflected in speech, clothing, and appearance. So on the one hand, the play is highly local, specific to India. Yet at the same time, it also seems to be insistently universal. How do you think about this tension between the specificity on the one hand of the locality of the play, and on the other hand, this kind of tendency toward the universal, as you put it, global south versus mm-hmm. global north? So I, I now realize what where I was going by starting with my, the point of view, the, the point of view uh, issue, which, as I say, is something that I notice, seem to notice more. Um, I, I have often made the point that the um, the wealth the wealth poverty gap that is important to me in the play and which I say is important to any production of the play I like to make the point that the wealthy in global south are no different to the wealthy anywhere else and in that sense they represent that is the wealthy represent anotherness, practically a separate, you could, it's not, it's not race, but it's a separate tribe, a tribe of, of privileged people 
who feel they have the right to the resources and, in, and harvest actually the bodies of people who are underprivileged. In no sense am I targeting white culture. That this is perhaps not obvious because we, not obvious in any reading of the play because in the first place I'm presented as an Indian. And you know, the world regards members of world cultures as belonging in little boxes. We can attempt to say, you know, um, actually uh, I don't quite see myself as belonging in this box, or I think I belong in that box. We can say that, but we will always be judged or assessed based on the box that people think we belong in. And of course I know that. At the same time, of course, I feel the need to push beyond the boundaries. And I would say that my personality is better described as hybrid. That is, I'm a cultural hybrid. It's, hybridity is nearly always regarded as a physical thing. But some of us, many of us, I would say, but it's not in terms of percentages, there must be hundreds of millions of people like me who are cultural hybrids and who in every real sense do not really belong in one or the other box culturally. I have access to different boxes. My mind is formatted in, in English and I'm very conscious that every so often I bump up against a barrier that is because of a cultural otherness that I represent. And that happens across boundaries across cultural boundaries. Sometimes I will meet another person who is like me, that we belong in the same box. But the box we belong in is actually diverse and is scattered, it's a scattered box. And in that sense, I don't really make judgments. I would like it if harvest were regarded in a more expanded way, but I have realized that it seems to comfort people if people either on stage or off stage remain within their familiar box. And then it's easier to grab them. If someone shifts out of their box and says, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like the time I visited, some, visited someone who had five spider monkeys living in, it was a big, it was a mansion and they had a large enclosure for spider monkeys including in their drawing room. And the enclosure was very open plan, but the monkeys were behind a wire barrier. And I don't really like monkeys because, because of what they can do. They, you know, they, have, they can move around in a way that other creatures can't. I'm, I'm fond of animals. I don't keep any, but I'm fond of animals. And I remember going up because they're very charming to look at. I remember going up to the cage and the monkeys were looking at me because they were, I was new to them too. And this is the point. As I was close to the cage, one little hand came out and grabbed my button, the button on my jacket. And I thought, this is so cheeky. You know, you are in your cage, I'm in my cage. Let's just keep our cages. And at the same time that I had that thought, I realized that this is what people do when they 
claim to cross boundaries, we come out of the familiar cage and cause a kind of drawing back on the parts of those who prefer to keep the boundaries. And I can see you, you can see me, but we stay behind our wire. And in that sense, harvest causes a certain discomfort in audiences because in certain ways it crosses the boundary even though you want it to remain clearly in, in place, you know, okay, this is a play by, I'm not even going to say in this context, Indian. This is a play by someone from the global South and it, it should remain there, but no, it comes out and is actually sort of cr critiquing the global North. How comfortable are we with that? And then it ends in the global South. At the same time, because she, Jaya, is using the first person pronoun. And when you watch something, when you read something in the first person of voice, the first personal voice of someone else, it becomes your voice. And the play ends with that voice being the voice of the audience taking control, even if it's for a short time. There's a final note I wanted to just say, as you were talking, this idea of hybridity, the idea of, transcending boxes, transcending categories, moving out and beyond any category. The figure that came to my mind actually comes from science fiction. It's the cyborg. It's much mm -hmm. like one of the, what one of the characters in your play becomes. Yes, this yeah. idea that we are part human. We are, of course, always and always have been part animal. We are now part machine. We are part, if we are in the context of a global economy, if we are citizens of the world, if we are cosmopolitan, we are part here, we are part there. This kind of hybrid identity is both mobilized by technology and I think fundamentally characterized by one of these kind of metaphors coming from our technological science fiction universe. It's a great note on which to end. And that's all for this season of Technical Human. We'll be back in the beginning of April with more episodes of the show. Before I go, though, I wanted to share that this is a bittersweet episode. Our producer, Matt Perry, who has been with the show since its early days, is moving on to pursue some dreams. You hear my voice on the show each week, but the work that goes into producing the show is vast and intense, and Matt has been behind so much of it. He's put his blood, sweat, and tears into putting together the show every week, and we'll miss him very much, even as we are excited to see the amazing things he does next. Thank you, Matt, for your work, for your brilliance, and for helping to build the show up to what it is today. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. We will see you in April with more episodes of Technically Human.